This is Guns and Butter. I want to talk about a deep state is to suggest that there is a zone of government which is not under the secure control of the public state and which is in a position to influence and shape the policies of the public state. And I would suspect, though I can't prove it, that Gladio might be an example of that because Gladio had huge consequences. Uh, particularly in Italy and Belgium and Turkey, but uh, Norway, other countries, it was a very widespread program, and obviously it was American in its conception and origin. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, the CIA, Drugs and the Deep State. Peter Dale Scott is a poet, researcher, and author of the War Conspiracy, JFK, 9-11, and the Deep Politics of War, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Crime and Cover-Up, The CIA, The Mafia, and the Dallas-Watergate Connection, and his latest, The American War Machine, Deep Politics, the CIA Global Drug Connection, and the Road to Afghanistan, which is the subject of today's program. Peter Dale Scott, welcome. I'm glad to be on the show. In your book, American War Machine, you state that, quote, a major thesis of this book is that the numerous authors who have written about a shadow government in the United States have usually neglected or underrepresented the role of the global drug connection in its development, meaning, of course, the shadow government. Would you say that the emphasis in your research on the global drug connection is what separates you somewhat from other writers who deal with what you have termed the deep state? I think not not all of them. Two authors leap out as doing the same sort of thing. One would be, of course, Alfred McCoy. Uh, His first book on drugs and my first book mentioning drugs came out in the same year, but his book is almost like the Bible in the field. And uh, I, I am more critical, perhaps, of the CIA and the drug traffic than he is, but his criticisms have had real weight in the country and led to, you know, congressional investigations and so on. And the other man is a co-author of mine, Jonathan Marshall. He and I did cocaine politics together. Uh, But there's not a lot of people in this field. Oh, Douglas Valentine, I'll probably remember some more after this show is over. But no, there are not many. That's the main point. You write that the continuous U.S. involvement in the global drug connection is a destructive pattern that persists to this day. Just how dangerous is the drug trade? You write that the global traffic in drugs is a threat to democratic institutions and to democracy itself. How so? Well, starting in the third world, uh, if you get a local drug traffic, you get... uh, people to protect it, to enforce it, the thugs who become organized. And this is from the point of view of the CIA is very useful because you can then recruit those people for your purposes and 
that's what I write about in Southeast Asia, Thailand and Laos particularly, and then later, of course, Afghanistan. But it's led to uh, a top-heavy, you know, the problem of the deep state in America is also a problem. We've had the CIA um, that for uh, over 60 years has been able to rely on funds that are not in its budget to conduct its own operations. So in an extreme case, we had the CIA fighting a war in Laos with an army of 35,000 troops. Uh, it was not authorized by Congress. It was not a democratic policy. It was one which had dire consequences because it turned the Golden Triangle into the major source of uh, opium and heroin worldwide, which was a scourge. And look, look what it did to our inner cities and is still doing to our inner cities. And uh, my analysis of how we got so involved in uh, Vietnam is that to a large extent it was uh, something which proceeded logically out of what we were already doing in Laos, and that proceeded logically out of what we were already doing in Thailand, and all of this was using forces who were financed by the drug traffic, and Congress had no say in the matter, didn't know about it, and even large sections of the executive didn't know about it, and many of those who did know about it opposed it, but it went ahead anyway. So, yes, I think it was a, a terrible thing, both abroad and at home. And uh, in my book, well, even more in another book, Drugs, Oil, and War, um, the experience of all this in Southeast Asia was then replicated uh, in Latin America, only there the supporting drug was cocaine. And um, I'm very proud of the fact that in, I think it was back in 1990, that George H.W. Bush had announced a war on drugs in uh, Colombia, the Andean campaign, and I predicted in 1990, I said, if we fight a war on drugs in Colombia, the result is going to be more cocaine coming to this country, not less. And uh, within 10 years, the amount of cocaine being grown in Colombia had trebled, which I attribute directly to the fact that planes were flying in and out putting arms and uh, troops in remote places exactly where the cocaine was being grown. And so out came the cocaine. In fact, they, they even indicted one of the people who uh, was in uh, an American colonel or somebody in the war on drugs in Colombia, was then eventually, I think, convicted for drug trafficking. But that's the tip of the iceberg. It wasn't one individual. It's this whole industry, this whole infrastructure of planes going in and out. And that's why Afghanistan also, once we started uh, backing people there, was transformed into the uh, source of 90% of the world's heroin, replacing the Golden Triangle, where we were no longer active as we had been before. It sounds like what you're saying is that the war on drugs itself led to an explosion in drug trafficking. Do you think that's the case? Well, that's, that's a, a very oversimplified but essentially true, I think, account of what has happened. It's conceded, you know, it was Nixon originally started the war on drugs back in 
1970, and more drugs are consumed here now than before. Well, a lot of people believe that if we would end the war on drugs, uh, that drug consumption would go down. Because if you fight a war on drugs, that makes uh, drug trafficking more profitable. It drives the price up. More people come in to cash in on this. And conversely, I think, um, you know, we're beginning to see now an easing off in the case of marijuana. And Mexico, you know, the, the worst era in the whole uh, drug situation for Mexico has been in the last decade, whereas tens of thousands have died in drug wars. And uh, although some of that profit is in cocaine, most of it is from marijuana. So uh, let everybody grow his own little plant and you would get rid of uh, something which is a social scourge in the sense of crime, prostitution, people shooting each other. Um, that all of this, I would say, you could say is a consequence of the war on drugs. The scale that it's at is a consequence. Did the U.S. Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after World War II have anything to do with Operation Gladio, the stay-behinds, who staged false flag terror targeted to incriminate leftists in Europe? And, And if so, where was the funding for Gladio coming from? Was the CIA skimming money from the Marshall Plan? Uh, the Marshall Plan was, I didn't say this in American War Machine because I didn't know it then. I don't know that it was known at all publicly, but we now know that the legislation establishing the Marshall Plan had a secret codicil in it, which perhaps most of the legislators weren't aware of, that a, a significant slice, maybe 10% or so, of Marshall Plan funds were in fact to be for covert operations in Europe. I can't prove that it went directly to Gladio. I think we can separate, we can talk about Gladio later. But for all CIA operations in Europe for some years, it was regularly, uh, they sent out something called the Economic Cooperation Administration, ECA. ECA administered um, the Marshall Plan funds, and some of the people in ECA were CIA, and uh, I think actually Bissell, Richard Bissell, uh, came back from ECA, joined the CIA, and moved right up to the top of DDP and ran the Bay of Pigs. Um, so that the Marshall Plan was a way of funding covert operations. And what this means is that, you know, uh, I've been thinking about this in terms of the deep state. The CIA is supposed to be part of the system of checks and balances of the state because Congress is supposed to have the, the power of the purse. And that means that maybe only a small group of uh, people in Congress, those who are cleared at the highest level, can uh, see what programs are being authorized and what not. But the CIA isn't dependent, never has been dependent on funds from Congress. It has always had access to funds from abroad, even before the Marshall Plan. The very first CIA operation of any consequence was in Italy in 1948, uh, the Italian uh, election. They were 
worried the communists were going to win. And very well, the communists might have won if it hadn't been for, I think it was $10 million, of, uh, at least $10 million of money came from the CIA, but it, it wasn't congressionally authorized money. It was captured Axis funds, which had never been turned in to anybody's treasury, but were just kept by intelligence agencies. There wasn't a CIA, of course, at the time the funds were captured, but when the CIA was finally created in 1947, they had access to these funds, and uh, then they had access to the Marshall Plan funds, and you can carry this right down to the present day. They have always had access to funds not voted by Congress. And instead of Congress controlling the CIA, it is very much the reverse, because some of those funds, uh, well, let's take uh, profits from the drug trade, for example. The, the, the drug trade became very big in Thailand, uh, thanks to the Thai police who were essentially created and supported and armed and trained and everything by the CIA. And you had enormous profits in Thailand in the 1950s from the drug trade. And some of those profits were channeled uh, to a man called Paul Helliwell in Miami. And he was a lawyer and he had the title of being his Thai Majesty's consul in Miami. He was also the man who would set up the infrastructure for the CIA for the uh, for the armies in uh, Southeast Asia who were trafficking drugs. And he would then distribute the funds. Uh, some of it went to Democrats, some of it went to Republicans. But profits from the drug trade were going to members of Congress. And they, they didn't even know it was drug profits. They just thought of it as money from Thailand. So it was somewhat uh, cleaned up or laundered by the time it reached them. But you see the difference in the balance of power. In a democracy, Congress should be controlling the CIA. But there have always been these funds coming from abroad, from projects connected to CIA operations, which have corrupted both Congress and the executive. And that's why it's important to recognize we have a deep state in this country. I'm speaking with author and researcher Peter Dale Scott, Today's show, The CIA Drugs and the Deep State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Peter, even if the funding, a lot of the funding for black ops uh, was coming from uh, drug trafficking and abroad, where the funding may not have been authorized by Congress, the Black ops themselves, even though maybe not publicly, they were still sanctioned by the government, right? They were sanctioned by the people in these agencies. Uh, I don't know who sanctioned Gladio. I don't know the. By the way, I separated off Gladio because uh, I, I'm not sure it was entirely a CIA operation. It, I think there was an input also from the Department of Defense. Um, so there had to have been, I think, people in uh, both the Pentagon and the CIA who authorized these things. I don't have great depth on the question of Gladio. I don't know if we know there was ever presidential authorization for it or not. 
Daniel Ganser in his uh, book on uh, Gladio uh, believes, and uh, he has a lot of support for it, that uh, a lot of the direction came from uh, the NATO headquarters in Brussels. Well, the head of NATO in Brussels is always an American. A lot of important people like Alexander Haig and so on. You either start in uh, as being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, like General Lemnitzer, and then go to NATO, or the other way around. You do a stint at the head of, uh, as the head of NATO, and then you come in to be like Haig, uh, the Secretary of State under Reagan. But uh, the fact that these things are being authorized by Americans in Brussels doesn't necessarily mean that Washington is telling Brussels what to do. I think this is a dark area where I don't know enough to say things with confidence, but uh, the reason I want to talk about a deep state is to suggest that there is a zone of government which is not uh, under the secure control of the public state and which is in a position to influence and shape the policies of the public state, and I would suspect, though I can't prove it, that Gladio might be an example of that, because Gladio had huge consequences, uh, particularly in Italy and Belgium and Turkey, but uh, Norway, other countries, it was a very widespread program, and obviously it was American in its conception and origin. Now, you mentioned Paul Hellowell, uh, according to your book, he was uh, part of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the, right. of, the Office of Policy Coordination, the OPC. Right, which I put a lot of emphasis on because most people weren't aware of it. But the CIA wasn't really in covert operations uh, in the early years. It, it was OPC that was set up to handle covert operations, and it was wildly out of control. And it was recognized to be out of control. So the idea was, well, we'll control it. We'll put it in the CIA. And that happened in 1952. And uh, they needed somebody to uh, oversee that. And that was Alan Dulles before he went on to be the director of central intelligence. And instead of the CIA being able to control the OPC, I think what really happened was the opposite that uh, the uh, so-called plans division of the CIA, which later got a more honest name, the operations division of the CIA, has totally overshadowed the significance of the analysts in the uh, Department of Intelligence, which is, of course, what the CIA was set up to do. That's why Truman complained in 1963, said the, the CIA... This is, I never wanted this. He said, I wanted the CIA to provide intelligence. And uh, there was substance to his complaint. But un unfortunately, it was done while he was president, whether or not he was fully aware of what was happening. The U.S. Office of Policy Coordination, the OPC, which you've been talking about, later folded into the CIA's Directorate of Operations. First plans and then later operations. Oh, I see. Okay. They didn't want OPC. You had no idea it was in operations. Uh, Department of Plans doesn't sound like they're doing operations. But yeah, they were doing operations. Finally, 
they called a spade and spade and called it the Department of Operations. Well, according to your book, uh, American War Machine, the OPC contributed to Gladio networks abroad, such as the Gray Wolves in Turkey, which you, which you write about. The OPC yeah. was uh, giving covert support to organized drug traffickers globally, constituting a global financial complex of hot money uniting business, government, and finance, according to your book. And you've mentioned that the OPC was run by Alan Dulles. Uh, Also, Frank Wisner was involved, wasn't he? Uh, Actually, Frank Wisner ran OPC. Dulles, uh, the, the OPC was a very complicated situation. It was supposed to be under the scrutiny of the State Department, the Defense Department, and the CIA without being part of any one of them. Frank Wisner ran it. And Alan Dulles was the man in the CIA who was responsible for coordinating it. And later, when it came into CIA, uh, he, I believe, was in charge. Uh, but it was it was remarkably independent. It had a huge budget. And yes, it. Uh, I mean, uh, Al McCoy did a good job on listing some of the countries. Uh, uh, OPC was involved with drug traffickers in uh, Marseille and Corsican drug traffickers. It was involved with drug traffickers in Italy. It was uh, the Grey Wolves. I'm not quite sure when that began, whether it was OPC or CIA, uh, but the Grey Wolves were drug traffickers. And uh, uh, then, of course, the biggest, the most systematic thing of all was in Southeast Asia centered in Thailand, but involving Burma and Laos. And uh, it was a huge operation there because uh, that was building up the drug trade. I mean, the, uh, the, the people in uh, Europe were just uh, distributors of drugs. But uh, I think, I'm doing this from memory, I have it in the book, but I think that production of drugs for the global market in Thailand uh, in the Golden Triangle, that's to say Southeast Asia, it was insignificant in world trafficking until the CIA went there. And uh, every country it multiplied by a factor of about 10. Some people say as much as 1,200 tons of opium a year were being grown at the end. And it had been really much less than that, I think under 100 tons, when the CIA began in about 1950. And, of course, you mentioned Paul Hellowell, who was uh, part of the Office of Policy Coordination, the OPC. Do you consider Hellowell to be the principal architect of the post-war CIA drug connection? I do consider him to be uh, an important post-war architect, absolutely. As to whether or not he was formally in the OPC, there's some difference of opinion about that, and it's hard to pin down. What we do know for a certainty was that he was a lawyer in Miami, and as a lawyer in Miami, he helped set up propriety companies for the CIA, which then became the infrastructure of the drug traffic. There were at least three, but I'll name two. The first one was something called CAT Inc., CAT Inc., which was short for Civil Air Transport. They took over uh, Claire Chenault's airline and uh, created a base for it in Thailand. 
And those supplied the planes that flew arms into Burma to uh, support the uh, Kuomintang KMT armies there that initially were supposed to fight communist China, but turned out to be totally incapable of even fighting local militias in China. So they just settled down and ran the drug traffic in, in Burma. And then there was another company in Bangkok, Sea Supply Inc., SEA Supply, short for Southeast Asia uh, Supply Inc. And Sea uh, Supply uh, would buy the arms and things which the army in uh, Burma needed. Now, this has been somewhat misunderstood, even by myself at one stage, when it became obvious that these KMT armies in Burma were not doing anything to fight China, but were growing drugs. And when the Burmese government complained about this, the America then uh, officially broke its connections with these armies. But it was an interesting thing about the planes in Cat Inc. By the way, Cat Inc. became Air America. Everybody, I think, knew about it in the end as a CIA airline. But the planes were 40% owned by the CIA. They were 60% owned by rich people in Taiwan. So you had a regular situation where the CIA would hire the planes for a flight of arms into Burma, uh, but the planes wouldn't come out of Burma empty. They would come out of Burma loaded with opium but that wasn't a CIA flight. That was a flight for the Chinese in Taiwan. So you had this uh, going on for 10 years. And uh, meanwhile, the, we had the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in those days, run by a man called Answinger. And a lot of his top people were also CIA people, like George White, the veterans of OSS. And uh, time after time, they would say that Communist China was bringing drugs into America. Well, Chinese were bringing drugs into America, but they were Taiwanese who were being very assiduously protected by the U.S. government. And I, in more than one book, I've given an example of a big drug bust that involved people right here in San Francisco. And uh, the top man of all, according to records that were later put into the congressional record from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. The top man was not arrested. He was allowed to uh, fly out of Hong Kong. And where did he fly to? He flew to Taiwan, because that's where it was all being masterminded. Uh, and there was something that became the World Anti-Communist League. The top people doing the planning were also in the Anti-Communist League, and they were aligned up with other drug traffickers in other countries. Um, Latin America became a big example. So that uh, all of this was a series of things which the CIA or OPC would help kick off at the beginning, but it would become autonomous, independent. The CIA wanted it that way. They didn't want to be running the drug business directly. They, their charter was to set up operations that were covert, that were plausibly deniable, and they created, in the fashion I've just described, they created a plausibly deniable relationship to the drug trade in, uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. 
they weren't profiting from it directly. Uh, they could say, no, we're not in the drug business. That was true, but they were responsible for the drug business being there, and they used it uh, most conspicuously in Laos, where, as I say, they had a Hmong army of thousands of people. Um, and no, they, they weren't paying the Hmong. The drug traffic was paying the Hmong. But the Hmong wouldn't have had air bases and they wouldn't have had airplanes if it hadn't been for the CIA. I'm speaking with author and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, The CIA Drugs and the Deep State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Was the World Anti-Communist League, which you've mentioned, actually a, a cover for uh, global uh, drug trafficking? No, I, th- I think they were sincerely anti-communist, but uh, they, I think, were many of them, not all of them by any means, but many of them were involved in drug trafficking. And uh, again, an example I gave was this uh, prince, I think his name was Sopsaisana, from Laos, and he was the official Laotian delegate to the World Anti-Communist League. And he was also picked up at Orly Airport in uh, Paris, the year I think was 1971. And he had a suitcase with six and a half million dollars worth of heroin in his suitcase. Um, the relationship isn't always as conspicuous as that particular one. But uh, I have, uh, in my bookshelves behind me here, I have the proceedings of the, uh, uh, actually in those days it was the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. It was only in 1966 it became the World Anti-Communist League. And I just uh, check off all the names on the side who are either involved in drug trafficking or involved in very dirty covert operations in their country, or maybe both together. Serge Peter Carlo, the executive officer for the official history of the OSS in World War II, who produced the two-volume war report of the OSS under high-level OSS and CIA officer Kermit Roosevelt, went on record that the still-censored section under Unorthodox Methods of Acquisition of Special Funds in Volume 1 is about the OSS's use of narcotics drug trafficking to fund covert operations during World War II and that this continued after the end of the war under the OSS's successor, the CIA. In your research into narcotics drug trafficking to fund U.S. covert operations, have you come across any other sources that this goes back to the OSS in World War II? Yes. um, It's a long time since I've looked at that material, but my memory of it is that actually it was Axis funds generally, some of which were narcotics and some of which weren't. It's something that's not very well understood, even though a lot has been written about it, is what happened in Italy in 1945 when Alan Dulles negotiated against his government's instructions, because America agreed at Yalta in 1944 that there would be unconditional surrender. And meanwhile, uh, Alan Dulles had developed uh, links to people in the SS, and especially a General Wolf, 
and this is called Operation Sunrise, and the kind of sort of a normal version of it for American consumption is that it was to negotiate a surrender of the troops in Italy, which finally happened one week before the generals surrendered. And that's true as far as it goes, but it's the tip of the iceberg, because what Wolf was in charge of he was in charge of the Ostmark, and the Ostmark is drawn by Hitler, involved uh, Italy and the South Tyrol and Tyrol, and essentially a big chunk, if not all, of Austria. And the SS, in the last weeks of the war, moved all their gold into Austria. They robbed the biggest bank in Berlin and took all its gold down to Austria, and the Croatians, who had their own, because uh, they were a Nazi ally in the war, and they moved their gold into Austria. And I believe that what that censored part of the report says, that uh, the OSS got involved in something called Operation Safe Haven, which was to uh, find out where all the gold was. I think what it, in effect, was a cover for... Um, taking over that gold. And we, we do know that the very first CIA operation, this is even before OPC is being created in June of 48, the, the spring of 48, the Italian election, was paid for with captured Axis resources. Whether that was narcotics or not, I don't know. But we, we do have it from official sources that it was... Uh, it was captured access resources. So that was a source of funds for the CIA then, and a precedent then for using funds from the Marshall Plan and all the other successive things that happened later. Right, including perhaps Operation Gladio and all of the, uh, and all of the covert ops that spun off from that. Yes. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be able to draw you a chart showing where Gladio fit in. But yes, obviously it was a covert operation and at a time when we had funds to draw on for such operations. And then, of course, they would also, in the case of Turkey, uh, at least, become largely self-sustaining because the Grey Wolves... I, I don't want you to think that Grey Wolves was Gladio. Grey Wolves was a drug-trafficking right-wing organization that Gladio recruited Gladio people from, but the the funding was taken care of because they were involved in drug trafficking. By the way, one of those people, this man Aja, is the man who who was then recruited by somebody. There's debate by whom, but recruited by somebody to shoot at the Pope, Pope John Paul, that's you know attacked in 1981, and uh, immediately the. CIA in Washington and the Reagan administration say, aha, the wicked hand of the Kremlin behind this. The man who did all that propaganda was chiefly a man called Paul Hensa, who had been the CIA man in uh, Ankara where they had set up this Gladio thing drawing on the thing. So it was a, a false flag operation, I think. And then you see, as you trace what happened to Aja through the years as he was uh, convicted and uh, put in prison and people would go talk to him, uh, you, you do see Western intelligence connections. You don't see communist connections. 
Uh, Peter, earlier you uh, mentioned uh, Corsican drug traffickers and the end of World War II. Could you talk a bit about, uh, back to Paul Hellowell, I believe he was involved in this, uh, James Angleton, of course, of the CIA, the Corsican drug traffickers, Marseille, and the Lansky-Luciano Global Drug Connection. Could you talk a bit about that? Okay, well, first of all, let's fix where Paul Halliwell was. During the war, he was in Kunming in Yunnan, China, which was so much at the heart of Chinese drug trafficking that that station actually paid their operatives in opium. That was a standard way. And a number of very interesting people, not just Halliwell, came out of that station. Uh, When he came to America, he set up a couple of banks in uh, Florida, and his partner was a man called E.P. Barry. And the interesting thing about E.P. Barry is that he had been with uh, OSS counterintelligence in Austria, working, according to a book I found, that he was working on Operation Safe Haven. So I've always wondered if some of that Axis money didn't end up in Paul Halliwell's banks in Florida. What we do know is that one of his banks, at least, was doing business with a bank in Switzerland, which was a bank used by a Meyer Lansky. So you can talk about a Halliwell-Lansky connection, and you can certainly say that the drugs coming they, of course, didn't come initially from France and Italy. They came through France and Italy, handled by the Italian mafia and the Corsican mafia, and really should say Sicilian mafia. Uh, Luciano, there's still a debate whether he was involved in the uh, drug trade. I, I'm one of those who believe that he was. Um, but certainly those mafias were involved, and uh, when you trace the the banking, uh, the banking is a system of Meyer Lansky banks uh, that Paul Halliwell's banks interacted with, and eventually the CIA itself helped set up a bank in the Bahamas called Castle Bank. This is a bit later now, in the 1960s, but uh, it's essentially set up to serve the needs of the CIA and to serve the needs of organized crime, and that the People on the America on the mafia side uh, goes directly to organized crime figures in Chicago. I have a whole chapter in American War Machine about this, and there are even some CIA documents referring to an operation, and then it's all blacked out. So uh, I could just reproduce the uh, blacking out. We don't know the name of the operation, but the CIA knew they were in bed with these mafioso types. And you mentioned James Angleton. Now, he was in a, definitely in a position because he was in, uh, in Rome uh, right after the war and had to deal with all the various OSS assets there. And that included both... Uh, right-wing fascists like Prince Borghese, who later on staged a a coup against the Italian government, but uh, also, and here it gets very shadowy, but Americans were not only involved with the Italian mafia, but we imported American mafia 
see, Mussolini was a, a totalitarian ruler. There were very few organized resistance groups to him. One group he could never control was the Mafia. Uh, he had reduced its power, but he had never been able to illuminate it. And you get this weird situation after World War II where an American from Tammany Hall by the name of um, Poletti, Charles Poletti, is running the Allied military government in, in Italy, that's AMGOT, and he's got Vito Genovese, who's a major American uh, uh, mafia figure and drug trafficker, in his office. That's, the, uh, that's fictionalized as Catch-22, but it was based on a real situation. William Donovan went to Italy in 1948. This is maybe before uh, OPC is in business and uh, seems to have been involved, this is according to a, um, an Italian book, but a, a good one, uh, in uh, setting up American mafia figures who helped. There was a risk of a communist takeover in Sicily, and that was dealt with, with a quite major massacre. So it's very difficult to give you a tidy picture of how Angleton relates to all that, because, of course, it's all covert. But uh, there is a milieu that Angleton is part of in Sicily, and it relates to all of these things relate, because ultimately they're all being supervised by OPC. And if, if Halliwell isn't exactly in OPC, he may have been. He certainly was doing business with OPC at a very high level. I mean, he was central to their planning. And uh, with, for the CIA later on, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal in 1980, they did a story about the Castle Bank, and they mentioned Halliwell. And they said that Halliwell was the paymaster for the Bay of Pigs operations. Well, I've worked with thousands of CIA documents and I've only encountered Paul Halliwell's name exactly once. And that one time was in a list of documents which were to be hidden when uh, they were hunting for the family jewels in the CIA. They, they, they were supposed to come up with a list of all these, the things the CIA had done which legally they should not have done. And Halliwell is not in the family jewels list because we know from one document that it was in a list of documents that were to be hidden in Theodore Shackley's safe at the time this, safe, this search was going on. Uh, I conclude from that that I think he was not the paymaster for the, uh, for the Bay of Pigs. That's a regular sort of bureaucratic job, which I think was done by someone at a much lower level. I think Helliwell was at a higher level, a real deep state level, and that uh, the Wall Street Journal, I hate to criticize them, but I, I think they would, he would probably had something to do with the Bay of Pigs, but I don't think he was the paymaster. I'm speaking with author and researcher Peter Dale Scott. Today's show, The CIA Drugs and the Deep State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Peter, before we leave the subject of Paul Hellowell, and of course you mentioned his banks in Florida, what can you tell us about the International Credit Bank in Switzerland 
that, uh, according to your book, was uh, founded by an Israeli uh, gunrunner and uh, Edmund de Rothschild. Yes, it was a man called Rosenthal. It, it a bit misrepresents him to describe those aspects of him. He was an important, uh, you know, before there was an Israel, there was a Mossad uh, trying to get Israel started. And uh, Mossad was both a, a former organization and a loose set, set of connections. And Tibor Rosenbaum is it? I don't have my book in front of me. Uh, he, he set up that bank as part of that loose connection, and Edmundo Rothschild, who was the sort of black sheep of the Rothschild family, uh, was involved. Their main goal was not to be in drugs or anything like that. Their goal was to have a state of Israel. But because they had limited resources, uh, they, like every other government, you know, the United States, France, Britain, they got involved in drug trafficking, too, yes. But that's not how I would characterize them. I may have said that in my book, but, uh, but uh, that's not how I would characterize them. And just as an interesting aside, when I was uh, reading a little bit about James Jesus Angleton of the CIA counterintelligence on, on Wikipedia, it happened to mention that he actually retired in Israel. He had very good Israeli connections, uh, some people say it came from when he was in uh, Vienna in the 1930s uh, as a student, not in the government yet. Uh, other people say it really happened in Rome uh, after the war because uh, it's an interesting thing that the, uh, I think part of the deal between Dulles and General Wolf was that certain people who were SS would be allowed to escape out of Europe and go to Latin America. The Vatican, by the way, was in on those negotiations, and the Vatican helped set up what they called the Rat Line, which was a series of safe houses whereby people could get out of Germany and get down to Italy and eventually go either to the Middle East or to Argentina. Most of them went to Argentina initially. One of the people involved in the negotiations, a man called Walter Rauf, R-A-U-F-F, Rauf, he personally went to Latin America, ended up in Chile, and may have been a factor in the 1973 overthrow of Allende in uh, 1973. He certainly ran a kind of Nazi colony in Chile, which was a source of right-wing activity. Um, among the people who were involved in this rat line were the Israelis, because a lot of Jews wanted to get out of Germany, too. And there was a kind of understanding, a deal, where um, uh, Jews wouldn't complain about the rat line getting the Nazis out because they could get Jews out the same way. And there are, I think, a memoir or two, there's at least one memoir, where a man says that it was very odd uh, to see that somebody who had been at his concentration, a Jew, saying that there was somebody from his concentration camp who had been one of his oppressors uh, for the Nazis, and now both he and his Nazi oppressor were escaping from Europe through the same rat line. So that's how, for sure, Angleton got to know Israelis in, in the 1945-6-47 period, because the CIA 
was also very involved. The remnants of the SS, uh, the CIA OPC, uh, the Vatican, Mossad, everybody was using that rat line. Now, with regard to the rat line, and I know there's a, a, a book out, a pretty new book, on the rat line, who, in your opinion, was running the rat line? Was that in an American operation, or...? No, this is where you have to you have to start thinking deep politics here. You see, everybody was running it, nobody was running it. It's like the OPC. Three different agencies were running it, meant it was autonomous. So that line, if any one individual was running it, it would have been a cardinal in one of the colleges in uh, in the in Vatican City. But he was a Croat. Was he doing it for the Pope, or was he doing it for the remnants of the Croatian government, really almost impossible to say. It was very much, I would say, in the end, autonomous. You'd be wrong to categorize it as being American or Vatican or Nazi. In the world of deep politics, you can't bring a kind of structural framework to say, okay, which box will we put this in? Was it American or was it Vatican? Everything becomes much more... I used to call it a milieu. It's more structured than a milieu, but it's far less structured than, say, a government agency or something like that. And it takes a lot of training to to think in terms of this deep state with its deep politics, and I'm still learning. I don't consider myself a real authority. I just consider myself somebody who's been poking around there for a long time, more and more astonished by what I learned there. Well, with regard to the global uh, drug trade, is there evidence that secret rendition flights to snatch and deliver victims to black sites such as Bagram uh, were more importantly cover for the pickup and delivery of drugs by the U.S. government? Is there evidence of that? There is evidence that uh, when the CIA had to uh, fly people secretly, they weren't going to book a ticket on American Airlines or British Airways, uh, they would turn to people who were in the covert flying business. Most of those people are arms traffickers and or drug traffickers, and usually the two together, because there's a natural symbiosis uh, in a trade where you fly arms into a disputed area which is, and drugs are grown in disputed areas, so you fly drugs out. And that's why when, for example, uh, we started supporting a covert operation in Afghanistan in 1979, mostly 1980, uh, it was mostly trucking, but the trucks that took the arms in were the trucks that took the drugs out. And that's why uh, fighting there made it so much easier uh, to export the drugs that you were growing. And, and that's when Afghanistan, for the first time, became a major drug exporting area. I think in terms of America, Reagan's own official records showed that America had almost no drugs from the Golden Crescent in 1979, and that 60% of American heroin came from the Golden Crescent in 1980. That gives you an idea of how important 
covert operations are to drug trafficking. So the CIA, they have to, uh, in rendition, they have to turn the asset to planes. Well, they hire the plane to do something. But the plane belongs to a man who's either in the arms trade or in the drug trade or in both. So it's very likely that a plane that's involved in a rendition flight may also have something else on board at the same time. The CIA hasn't uh, decreed that. It's not a CIA decision. But you're hiring an airplane over which you don't have complete control. So you get an overlap of operations on that level, too. I, I have seen the claim that rendition flights involved drug planes, and I don't know anything more than what I've seen that point. You write in your most recent article that 70% of the $60 billion that the government spends on intelligence goes to private intelligence contractors, Booz Allen Hamilton, SAIC, etc., that yep. the private intel contractors constitute a revolving door employment with government, and that Booz Allen is, is majority-owned by none other than the Carlyle Group. That's true, yes. All, all of that is true. And Booz Allen, uh, you know, Allen Dulles became director of the CIA in '53. Eisenhower took over, and that was a green light to the OPC people because Truman didn't like covert operations and was, had tried to restrain it. And 1953 is the year that Booz Allen Hamilton, well, in those days it was Booz Allen and Hamilton, and uh, they, until then, had been uh, a management consulting firm working with U.S. corporations in America. But 1953 is the year that the CIA goes big time in covert operations abroad, and in three countries in particular, uh, the Philippines, General Lansdale, um, in Egypt, and Iran. And lo and behold, uh, Booz Allen and Hamilton goes big time abroad um, in 1953, and the first three countries are uh, the Philippines, uh, Egypt, and Iran. And uh, somebody like Miles Copeland, who helps Kermit Roosevelt, whom you mentioned earlier, overthrow the Shah of Iran in 1953, um, then uh, leaves uh, the CIA, Miles Copeland goes to Booz Allen Hamilton. And then uh, after a while, he's working for Booz Allen Hamilton, which has contracts with oil companies around the world. He then takes a, quote, leave of absence, which I think is not a very real leave of absence from either agency, and goes to work for a man called Adnan Khashoggi, who becomes the richest man in the world from his profits from arms sales to Saudi Arabia, some of which profits are then kicked back into CIA operations, and some of them are kicked back into Khashoggi's personal budget. The richest man in the world starts funding American politicians, and that's a, probably a good way to end it because we see how the deep state is controlling the politicians rather than the politicians controlling the deep state. Peter Dale Scott, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie.
I've been speaking with Peter Dale Scott. Today's show has been The CIA, Drugs, and the Deep State. Peter Dale Scott is a former Canadian diplomat and English professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He is a poet, a researcher, and author of The War Conspiracy, JFK 9-11 and the Deep Politics of War, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, Crime and Cover-Up, The CIA, The Mafia, and the Dallas-Watergate Connection, and his latest, The American War Machine, Deep Politics, The CIA, Global Drug Connection, and The Road to Afghanistan, which was the subject of today's program. His latest article is The State, The Deep State, and The Wall Street Overworld. Visit Peter Dale Scott's website at www.peterdalescott.net. That's peterdalescott.net. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D. B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Hey, yo!